All right, everybody. Badlands food. I've been thinking about getting a dog with my little family. We are about to introduce a dog, I believe, at some point here, and I have a interest in how we're going to be treating said dog. And it occurs to me, you know, that many dogs suffer from health issues. And with Badlands Food, actress Catherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dogs' joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health. She's looking at their food. What she discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that by just adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step step how anyone could do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. It caught my attention, and as I'm about to uh, get a dog, I think that I'm going to uh, use this service, so I thought I'd share it with the audience as well. Uh, I know many of you have dogs. If you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash dark topic and watch Catherine's video right now again that's b-a-d-l-a-n-d-s-f-o-o-d.com slash dark topic to check it out badlandsfood.com hi buddy hey it's the time stories nine out in the wash. Internal chatter is normal, to a point. But if you're always talking to yourself, arguing with yourself, then you're probably at odds with your soul. I can feel my soul. And it hurts, aches, really, now that I've begun to spill it a bit, like an inflated bladder after holding a piss much too long. I didn't believe I had one, considered the idea of a soul to be a made-up thing, a construct to hold intangibles like instinct and love and evil. But as I got older and as I began to utilize the nagging ball of energy I've always felt in the dead center of myself, the chatter inside my head started to break apart. Anytime I went with what some people call their heart or their gut, I suddenly felt at peace. Whether the result of speaking from my soul ended in losing a job, a friend, a relationship, it didn't matter. I finally had peace. I had respect for myself. Because I was being what I was supposed to be. No internal grudges, no lies, no pussyfooting around. I was finally present. And not just another dope doping around out there. Physically alive, but spiritually just doing enough to keep the lights on. Because I suppose... For many, it's just its scary out there to be yourself. To bear your soul, to expose what you really are, is scary. But like a wolf cub exploring the outside of its cave, day by day, it gets easier. You get braver. And for myself now, year by year, I'm learning to tame it. I share all of this because the forthcoming dead time holds within it a most heinous crime. Like really fucking bad. And I was about to move past it, leave it to rest, avoid stirring up all of the incredible evil energy that oozes from the imagery conjured upon simply speaking, hearing the details. 
but in the spirit of developing a new mindset that includes a personal belief in something more, I decided to hell with it. That's not a saying I normally use. I'm not Thelma or Louise. I mean, literally, to hell with it. If I could direct more outraged energy upon the released soul of serial killer Oba Chandler by sharing what he did in the early summer of 1989, then to hell with it. To hell with him. All right, sure, it's sad that when Oba Chandler Jr. was just 10 years old, his father finally succeeded in killing himself after several half-hearted attempts following a power line accident that killed Oba's older brother. Oba's sister, just 12, found Oba Sr. hanging in the basement. Let's hope the young lady spotted first the floating legs and didn't catch an eyeful of awful. Personally, I think seeing someone in a casket is a terrible thing. A terrible image to have burnt into your head is the last thing that you remember about them. I can't imagine what it's like to come upon your father at a young age, swinging from the rafters, eyeballs bulging, tongue protruding, piss on the floor, the smell of feces in the air. Seems rather inconsiderate. This story becomes somehow sadder at the burial as the gravedigger begins shoveling dirt on the coffin. Oba Jr. gets up and jumps into the hole with his father, unable to accept the loss, furious at the desertion. It is hard to say what this kind of trauma can do to a person, to a boy already showing signs of being a little off, let's say, but it can't be good. It would have been for the best looking back now if young Oba Chandler had stayed down there in his father's grave, furiously stomping on, then sobbing over the casket until showers of soil snuffed him out. That would have saved a lot of trouble, a lot of heartache, a lot of lives. As we drift away from this concerning scene from the 1950s in a Cincinnati graveyard. Young Oba is pulled out of his father's grave, dusted off, but left somehow filthy on the inside. Moving forward into his teens, he'll become a thief, into his twenties a prowler, a pervert. He'll be arrested on multiple occasions, showing glimpses of what he is, tying one woman up during a home invasion, rubbing a gun over her belly and thrilling in her terror. He will have many children with many women, yet somehow fail to be a father. All who will think to know him will not, and the rare few who meet the real thing will die. But we must drift away, as Oba Chandler blazes a sadistic trail from Ohio to Florida, killing untold numbers of women all the while. We drift away, heading straight to what we know for certain. A crime so advanced in its depravity that the perpetrator would need plenty of time to work his way up to it. So time we give Oba Chandler. Nineteen eighty-nine. Three decades and a hundred miles from the disturbing scene at the Cincinnati graveyard, the Rogers family of Wilshire, Ohio is dealing with their own crisis. 
Running a successful dairy farm had made Mother Joan and Father Hal so busy that they'd lost track of their two daughters. Sure, they were around, being only teenagers, but their eldest girl, Michelle, for the last three years has been getting sadistically raped by her uncle, a former Marine who lives in a trailer on their 200-acre farm. When the truth comes out, after the uncle is accused of another assault, Police discovered lurid photos of now 17-year-old Michelle in Uncle John's briefcase, along with video proof of the initial rape accusation. Uncle John was, of course, arrested, but Michelle's father, Hal Rogers, soon bailed his brother out and worked to put the whole thing behind them. Even though his youngest daughter, Christy, had just turned 14 and likely was up next. To Mother Joan, the whole situation was insanity, something Uncle John claimed to be suffering from and soon was handed a seven-year sentence for his crimes as a result. Joan, who went by Joe, was fed up with the whole scene. Hal's indifference to what his brother had done to their daughter was not sitting well, so she planned, without Hal's knowledge, that initiated a getaway from the farm. Joe would take her girls on a road trip to Florida, to Disney World, in an attempt to wash all of the recent nastiness off in the ocean. Unfortunately, in this same summer of 89, Oba Chandler was living in the Tampa Bay area. He'd scored a wife with money this time around and was enjoying the easy life on his boat between doing the odd aluminum siding job. The Gypsy One, a two-tone motorboat, blue-hulled with white interior, could seat six, and Oba had begun to fantasize it as a means to trap women, preferably groups of them. Weeks previous to the three Ohio girls falling into this Ohio boy's clutches, a couple of Canadian tourists had barely escaped Oba's first attempt to use Tampa Bay as a killing ground in a story that would have rivaled any of the many working horror scripts of the time. Florida is full of con men, and Oba fit in quite nicely in that regard. Tourists are prime targets for swindle, and a man with a boat could gather enough cash in a week doing unlicensed sunset tours to pay for a weekend's worth of drinks at least. In the case of the Canadian tourists, Oba had more than a quick buck in mind. But when only one of the women showed interest in the sunset ride, his hopes were dashed. He took the one young lady out anyways, knowing rape and murder were out of the question since her friend would be able to ID the boat, ID him, once out in the bay, he offered to take some photos of the pretty tourists, and as the sun went down, an impulse rose in Oba, and before he could employ better judgment, he was on top of the girl. She begged for him to stop, told him she was a virgin and was saving herself, which was a big mistake. At this news, Oba's lust became all-encompassing, a slobbering thing, and he took what she begged to keep before the sun managed to completely hide its face from the scene. When he was done, the girl huddled in a corner, sobbing. She made mental note of the yellow letters on the engine, studied the man's face, cataloged all she could in case she was ever given the chance to have him pay for the brutal theft. Oba paced about the boat, swearing and running hands through his hair. It is clear from our vantage point that he wants to kill the girl, to get rid of the evidence but he can't. The friend. She had seen him. 
She was in fact waiting, wondering, somewhere back on land. Oba vomits twice over the side of the boat, an action that later will be mistaken for revulsion at his act, but more likely was a reaction to the corner he'd put himself in. Eventually, under the cover of darkness, he brings the girl close to shore and has her swim to the beach. She'll report the rape the next day and eventually provide a description of the gypsy one and of Oba Chandler that will help bring his doom. But not before the Rogers girls met theirs. From the Canadian tourist's description and sketch, the suspect was 37 to 40 years old, 5'9 or 5'10, 200 pounds and stocky with a pot belly. He had short reddish blonde hair, a light mustache, a pockmarked face, and a dark, leather-like complexion. He wore a mint green short-sleeved shirt with mesh on the bottom half. He smoked Marlboros. His boat, which the Canadian tourist thought was close to 20 feet long, had a blue canopy top and exterior, white interior, and the word Volvo, painted in yellow, on the engine compartment. A memory surfaced of the man cutting gray duct tape and having an assortment of ropes in with the life preservers once the bodies of the Rogers girls had been found bound and gagged. But Oba Chandler and his boat would disappear from Tampa Bay as soon as his description and what he left behind following the evening of June 1st, 1989 hit the papers. The Rogers girls had checked into a day's inn, room 251, after having been given directions from the nice man from Ohio. Dave was the name Obachan there had given Joan Rogers, charming her with the talk of back home, making she and the girls feel like they'd found a friend out here in the completely foreign to them south. The trip had been wonderful so far. Disney World, Sea World, Silver Springs, now the beach and an offer for a sunset cruise. Joan had to be smiling inside. She had her girls, and she'd given them a trip to remember for a lifetime. She hadn't even bothered to call her husband Hal, as it didn't matter. The reason he'd bailed at his brother was no great mystery. It was simple. He needed him to work. It wasn't because Hal cared more for John than his daughter, but because he didn't care at all about anything other than the dairy farm about work, about money. Not all monsters kill women and eat children. Some do their damage with indifference, with silence. It's no wonder Hal would become the prime suspect. Every interview he will later give is cold, disinterested. Matter of fact. Once they unpacked, 17-year-old Michelle called her boyfriend. 14-year-old Christy maybe read a magazine on a neatly made bed. And 36-year-old Joe likely still smiled to herself none knowing they'd grown old, that the photos they'd soon snap off the balcony would be used as evidence for a timeline, that the dinner they would soon enjoy before driving to the man named Dave's boat would be their last. We all have our last moments coming, but how terrible it is to actually see the Rogers girls last and the roles of film they'd hoped to develop once back home at the farm in Ohio. How unnerving to think that we each are using up film ourselves, but have no way of knowing when the reel is meant to spin empty. Following directions she'd written on a brochure, a brochure that holds the handwriting of Oba Chandler, with the always capitalized T's 
the consistently inconsistent tales on the wise, Joan eventually finds the blue and white boat, though it's the man named Dave she spots first, waiting for them. They board under the bright smile and barrage of small talk from their captain and are soon snapping pictures of the setting sun as the Gypsy One makes its way out into the middle of the bay. Once the light begins to falter and their silhouettes become the water and the sky to those on shore, the man the girls knew only as Dave from Cincinnati envelops them. He took his time with them. There was no physical evidence he'd had to beat the girls into submission, so it's very likely that he pulled a weapon then ordered them to tie each other up. Once secured, he may be double-checked, retied, and tightened where necessary, made sure the mother and her daughters were sufficiently incapacitated, then had his way with the group for hours, raping each in front of the other, taping their mouths shut tight but not covering their eyes, no. Oba wanted to see that they saw, wanted to double the terror, triple it, by playing off of his victim's bond, their love for one another, their desire to have him stop. But he didn't. He took it as far as he could, then tied rope to 30-pound cinder blocks and unceremoniously dumped each of the Rogers girls into the bay. 17-year-old Michelle managed to get a hand loose, but that's as close as any of them would come. They drowned on the way down, beside one another, struggling all the while, anchored by the neck. Oba Chandler got to work on his alibi as his victims torpedoed to their deaths below, his mind already off of their plight before they'd even succumbed to the frightening method of murder he'd chosen. It was late, and Oba once again radioed his wife. He'd done this several times during this incident, creating a trail, claiming he'd been stuck on the water for hours. Back in his lair, he waited to see if the girls would be missed, assumed they would be, and incredibly there was a moment where it was possible that they actually wouldn't be. Father Hal Rogers wasn't that worried back on the farm. He figured Joan had taken the girls and split, so it wasn't until the warm Tampa waters decomposed and bloated the bodies to the point where they began to float back up to the surface despite their anchors that it was known a crime had occurred. The girls were found in a cluster a couple hundred feet apart, three days after their deaths, spotted by a recreational sailor bobbing around below the surface as if still fighting to break it. Eyes clouded, shredded clothing clinging to their torsos, but each naked from the waist down. A horror of all horrors. And for a while, Oba got away with it. It took some time for the most major piece of evidence to be discovered. Well, to be fair, it had been discovered. It just hadn't been examined. The brochure with Oba Chandler's distinct handwriting, Owen his palm print. This was found inside the Rogers family's deserted 84 Oldsmobile Calais, a light blue car found in a parking lot at the boat launch a mile or so from their hotel, 25 miles from the bodies. Here is Sergeant Glenn Moore, of the St. Petersburg Police Department, explaining how inept this investigation initially was, though it's not clear he's aware that he's doing so because I think he's inept as well. I've heard of bumbling cops, but this short clip really is eye-opening. Can you do 
an autopsy of a body. I mean, you slice it open and you dissect it. You'll find that most homicide investigations don't really do that with their evidence. They take the initial look at the body of evidence and it goes to the evidence room and whatever initial processing was asked to be done on that maybe is done but there's not a, a real close examination of every dot and tittle of that evidence <laughs> once the evidence is finally left not just collected but also analyzed things incredibly begin to happen in a shocking departure from complete buffoonery to outside the box ingenious tactics Investigators decide to post the unique piece of handwriting on billboards around Tampa Bay. It doesn't take long for a former customer and neighbor of Oba Chandler to recognize the strange script. She knows immediately that the handwriting will match the receipt of work he had done for her. The sketch of the man they are looking for doesn't just resemble the odd neighbor she'd never felt right about. It is him. Oba is tracked down to Port Orange near Daytona Beach and brought back to Tampa for questioning. His palm print is matched to that one found on the brochure. In a photo lineup, the Canadian tourist gasps when she sees his picture and turns it over, unable to look at it. Oba's own family comes forward and shares that they suspected him in the killings ever since he'd started telling them that he did it. Seeing as how he'd fathered eight children with seven different women, you would think Oba would have had someone come forward and defend his honor, but it appeared he was an unlikable man difficult, self-serving, completely devoid of redeeming qualities. By 2011, he was known as the loneliest man on death row, having spent 17 years in Florida State Prison without a single visitor, outside of investigators or attorneys, before his number was finally called. Unlike the rest of us, he was allowed to see the final snapshots of his life, allowed to know the very minute of the day he would die. He knew his final meal, a pathetic spread of two salami sandwiches on white bread, one peanut butter sandwich on white bread, and iced tea. He was given time to consider his last words, words he could have used to repent, apologize, provide absolute closure, words that he initially promised to be, quote, kiss my rosy red ass. But in the end, he instead chose to pose himself as the victim by stating in a letter that was only open following his lethal injection appointment. You are killing an innocent man today. Oba Chandler. There just isn't anything that can be done to set some people right. They'll just keep taking until there's nothing left. Men like this. People like this. They'll depend on the forgiveness of others to continue their trespasses. And if there isn't a hell, there ought to be. For the soul of a sadistic rapist, the soul of the kind of killer who'd watch a mother's eyes move to her daughters and her daughters to her little sisters before hanging them all alive underwater. There really ought to be. For a man who killed God knows how many. A man who, even though he was doomed, decided to keep his secrets. Secrets that would have given the gift of closure for some. He kept them. We know this for certain, as in 2014... DNA connected him to a Coral Springs cold case where a 20-year-old woman, freshly married, had been kidnapped, raped, strangled, and stuffed under a residential mailbox for a couple of fishing buddies to discover. He killed so brazenly, Oba Chandler, so secretively as well, but with gusto in the moment. An unassuming devil in a human suit, 
born, made, a mix of both, who knows? Who cares? It's bothersome to think that men like this just get to die, to sleep forever, after a life spent keeping so many terrified and awake. The only solace I get is from my gut, from my heart. And what it tells me is that in the end, it all comes out in the wash. Thank you.